0: Robert, chai means life in Hebrew. So chai, fidelity.
1: It's also a good good tea. It's chai fidelity.
0: (laughs) Which is when you're loyal to one tea brand. (laughs) This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my two co-hosts. First, tablet senior writer, Liel Leibowitz. From a safe distance, shalom. I would say you're physically distanced but not, but socially I've never felt closer to you, Liel. I feel the
2: same way too, Mark.
0: And tablet deputy editor, (laughs) Stephanie Butnick. Oh, hello! <laughs> oh, my God, So much good stuff today. Remember how we told the entire J crew to watch High Fidelity? Well, we wanted to go straight to the source. So we landed Super Gentile Nick Hornby as our Gentile of the week, and we're gonna talk with him. Also, Stephanie had a conversation with Rachel Rosenthal, who teaches Talmud at the Jewish Theological Seminary, and she's gonna share with Stephanie her experiences with infertility in the religious Jewish community. And finally, Stephanie also Stephanie, you are you are interviewer of the week. I've
1: been busy, guys. Busy,
0: busy, busy. Stephanie checked back in with Rachel Myers and her Nana Roberta, who you may remember from the great documentary Wendy's Shabbat. So so good to to collectively be with you all on this. This is a this is my choicest, most elite Zoom call of the day, I want you to know.
1: This is like my fifth in chronology, but my first in importance.
0: <laughs> first in your heart. I think that on that call we were both on earlier, Stephanie, I had the great insight that Zoom is the PowerPoint of 2020, which is the thing that's indispensable, but everyone hates
2: it.
1: Yes, yes. Are you guys at
0: the
2: point of hating
1: it yet? It's true. It's like, now for my PowerPoint presentation. And you're like, oh my gosh. Not (laughs) that.
2: And here's the thing. Those of us who play video games actually realize that there is such a better way to do it when you're actually in a virtual environment where you can interact and feel kind of like (laughs) semi-embodied and talk to other people. And like half the world already does and for the so, other half of the world, it's like, we will sit here looking like the Brady Bunch and mute So we each should do, other. like, like it's just...
1: Animal Crossing instead? What is, what's the answer?
2: We ran a great piece in Tablet about this yesterday. Animal Crossing is the future of mankind. It is how we'll educate, <laughs> nurture, date, procreate. Everything in the future is Animal Crossing. Just saying.
0: All right. So while we're on the subject of technology, enough of this trivial banter. Let's get to the important banter. A couple months back, I assigned everyone... High fidelity in whatever form. Sid and I were watching the the Hulu reboot TV show with Zoe Kravitz. I'm a big fan of the movie. I'm also a fan of the book by Nick Hornby. Let's start with Stephanie. You had experienced high fidelity in none of these media. What did you do? How did you catch up? And and what's your take?
1: So here's the thing. There was something about John Cusack movies that have all got lumped together in my mind as this sort of like emo kid, like sad guy, romantic, like can't get the girl, holding the boombox. And and I think I actually like resisted the, the prompt because I was like, do I really need to see another John Cusack movie?
0: To be clear, there are two of those. You mean two movies. You mean this and Say Anything, one of which you'd seen.
1: Yeah, but I also, I feel like every John Cusack movie is sort of the same. Is that possible? Like, am I totally?
0: There's a little of that in Gross Point Blank.
1: Yeah, okay. Okay. Fair enough. Like it's like, but, it's so like you don't, rainy and he's so like... So you don't like the genre? I think I do like it, but in my mind, I'm like, do I need to watch another one of those? Obviously, this movie wasn't that at all, but it's sort of interesting to me. It's sort of like how John Hughes movies are now, like to me, all the same. Like, oh, you can watch The Breakfast Club or you can watch Pretty in Pink or Sixteen Candles, but they're all kind of the same. Whereas that's such a flattening of a genre that I know is really, really important at, at one point. So it's like, it, it's it's at weird for me point. to confront... No, no, no I'm saying...
2: It, <laughs> Mark's if, like, that the, point was last Thursday. That point is I mean, no, I mean, tomorrow. No, like,
1: happened it was a huge deal but so I'm confronting my own like modern today bias towards that movie and it was so interesting to me to watch the new version which it's it's itself part of this other genre of new creations I don't know I I I liked it it's my answer I like the
0: movie so did the movie surprise you
1: yeah I mean I was trying to unpack why it was that I was like oh do I need to see this yeah yeah. Um, yeah, the movie surprised me. Like, it's, it's, always, it's funny to see Jack Black like before he was Jack Black. Like it's again, it's someone I take for granted as being a certain way and being a certain character. And you see him basically like in his breakout role, and you're like, oh, he wasn't always this.
0: Except he's the same character. This is where he created the character, isn't it? Of him as the music-obsessed weirdo. The credits
1: go right into School of
0: Rock. Basically. So just for those of you who don't who know nothing about this in the J. Crew, it was a book by Nick Hornby in it came out in the mid-90s. Then it was a movie, and it's about um a kind of sad single guy who owns owns a vinyl record store and he's obsessed with music, but he can't really connect with women. And he's trying to figure out why. I want to say, actually, Stephanie, listening to you say that, I thought to myself as I was harumphing, I thought, wait a second, she's actually describing exactly my relationship with superhero movies, which is like, I know that to someone who understands the genre or care or just likes the movies and, and has a relationship with the movies, they're all quite different. And I flatten them all into like, impossible things happening, maybe there's some explosions, maybe there are people flying, superpowers, blah, blah, blah. Totally unfair. And then Natalie Portman
2: ruins the whole thing. <laughs> Liel, what about you? How was your revisiting of High Fidelity? Look, you know, this this kind of creeped up in our conversation about keeping the faith. I find the sort of 90s and, and late 90s, early 2000 movies to be really difficult to watch because you watch a 50s or a 60s movie, it clearly belongs to some kind of like a right. different era, totally blob. different right. era. This is called the past, right? Like, right. and and I understand it to be when so actually everyone times. was in black and white. Absolutely, in in real life, that's how you actually <laughs> saw the world. Maybe it's because I've lived through it. Maybe it's because sometimes I think it is still, you know, possibly two thousand or two thousand and one. But you watch this thing that looks like, to use a, a a dumb big word, a simulacra of this world, right? And yet, at the same time, it is completely not our reality. Nothing about this movie feels feasible to me now, which is one of my problems with the TV show. Mark, you and I have gone a lot back and forth, and I think we agree on this. Even the basic fact of what music means, like when I grew up, music was what defined everything. Yeah, it's everything. how you picked your friends. It's how you picked your dress. It's yep. how you picked your pastime, everything. Now kids are like, oh yeah, it's that one single that I heard on a TikTok, whatever, man. It's like just like some kind of disposable soundtrack of my life, and that's why the new show doesn't work for me. I I refuse to believe that there are kids today listening to entire albums, and I refuse to believe that there are kids today who, like, would even bother being like, oh, wow, I'm going to listen to Steely Dan or Fleetwood Mac or something that came, you know, before Beyoncé went solo.
1: I disagree with you, Liel, because I think... Obviously, yes. Watching the new version, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. It's also funny because I'm like, really, a record store like that's still in. Like, I have you know, whenever you watch something that's set in New York, right. you're also like, wait, they went there? Are you sure they could would have gone there? Like, you sort of pick it apart in that way. Um, I found the whole thing very entertaining. I obviously love the the gender flip, the sort of the flip of, of both gender politics and sexual politics. I was you know interested by. I'm excited to talk to to Nick about all of that. Um, but the funny thing is, you you see people almost lonelier than ever now. All the characters are so alone, even though they're so connected 24 7 by a bajillion devices and screens. They actually still want that connection of music, and so I think that there's something really powerful. I, I disagree with your thing that like just because you don't listen to a record full start to finish, you don't have that.
2: But they, hold on, but they listen to their music on an iPhone, and then the song gets interrupted by like an Instagram update, and then a text, and then then Facebook. Thing. It's
1: still that escape for people. It's still that grounding identity thing for people. I think. I think that's what. No, it's sh-
0: not. I don't see. Wait, feel that you way mean at all. Duke there was a crowd of people who were identified. By like being into this band.
1: No, I don't mean a Duke, I mean on this show.
0: Right, but I'm saying but Liel's saying like the show is bad fiction for that reason. Well, let me ask you this, Stephanie, since we are like talking across this weirdly narrow but also deep generational divide.
1: Yeah, we're literally like what 10 years apart. Yeah. <laughs> right. And like <laughs> that we're, when we're doing this
0: podcast and like Liel and I are eighty three and eighty one and you're mm-hmm. like seventy two, like, where's their sixty nine? <laughs> It'd be like just old people. Talking.
1: We'll be going to Shabbat at
0: Wendy's. Right. Liel and I wax so pathetically nostalgic. We're just such yeah. such cliches. Does anything about this era, like Keeping the Faith, the, the era that Liel and I basically think was best, which is about this moment in 1996, does anything about it appeal to you or is it just pure silliness on our part?
1: No, it appeals to me because I watched those movies. I was just a bit younger than you were when I watched them. So they were almost a little bit more aspirational, right? All those 90s movies I was watching as a as a kid. I mean, look, I, I get it. I'm not I'm not saying those movies aren't good or I don't identify with them or I don't find the nostalgia.
0: I mean, the era, is there any part of you thinks, oh, I would have been happier that, then?
1: Yes, of course. I mean, when the new High Fidelity opens, uh, Zoe Kravitz picks up a, a landline. And so I was like, oh, I guess, and I hadn't, I, I sort of purposely didn't read a lot about it. And I was like, oh, cool. Like, this, I guess they're keeping the whole like 90s thing. And then of course, <laughs> She leaves her cell phone at a bar. (laughs) I think, I think you guys are a little bit wrong. I think that music still, I mean, we could talk to Nick Hornby about this, right? He knows more about this than anyone. Music still has this role in people's lives. It just looks different.
0: I have two quick takes on this. One is the guy who plays the dude that Zoe Kravitz strings along.
1: Jake Lacey. He's also
0: in Mrs. America and he was in Girls and he always plays the same like sweet, good-natured doofus who kind of shuffles around and is cute about it. It's just like he has a role. And Sid and I are always seeing him like, wait, we just saw that dude in something else on a streaming service. And the second thing I want to say is, and I would really like your takes on this. One reason I thought the TV show didn't work as well is I do think it's important that John Cusack is like kind of cute in a nebishy way, but not a hottie. And that's obviously plays into the fact that he's had a checkered past with the opposite sex with his love life. Obviously, I know that there are hot people who are lonely and there are people who are not considered hot who have terrific love lives. Nope. Sorry. That's that's factually incorrect.
2: There are no hot people who are
0: lonely. But Zoe Kravitz is one of the best looking people there is.
1: It's not just that she's so beautiful. It's that she's just like so cool. Like, I think what you're actually saying is like you're like, how could she could even be she could be the lamest person ever and you'd still like want to be around her just because she seems so cool.
0: I'm not sure that's wrong, but you're right. That part of the problem here is that she's super beautiful and the character is super
2: charismatic. Right. So it just didn't work for me. I was like, you, there's just no way you'd be it's this lonely. In what <laughs> universe are you not able to get whoever you want, married or unmarried, doesn't even matter?
1: I do want to say that like maybe there's something not sexist about that argument, but like it's hard to say that about a woman mm-hmm. in the way, like, like if it was like a really hot guy that was cast in the remake.
0: No, Brad Pitt could not have played. it. Just, I, I don't think it's sexist. And I, I'm sure we'll get pushback from some of our listeners on this. But I just think when one of your defining traits is... The extraordinary chiseledness of your features.
1: I mean, she's so beautiful. Also, she's she's. I want to be friends with her. Like I want. I want right. to. I want to hang around her. Whereas John Cusack's character sort of radiates the sense of sort of right. desperation. Stay away. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Uh, so what are we doing next? I actually vote Mrs. America. I need to watch it. Gives us some some Bella Abzug love. Should we do that, Stephanie? Would you sign on for that? I would do that. All right. J. Crew. Let's all watch Mrs. America. It's on Hulu. It's about the fight for the ERA. Terrific performances from Kate Blanchett, Margot Martindale, Rose Byrne as all sorts of uh, important feminists from the 70s. Bella Abzug, Gloria Steinem, Betty Friedan. Really good stuff.
1: Jake Lacey. Let's all watch it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Jake Lacey. Is in. Let's just do the whole Jake Lacey. Canon. Jake Lacey is Betty Friedan. What else is going on in our lives? What else have we been reading, watching, listening to? The
1: only thing going on in my life is the most amazing thread that has ever existed on our Facebook page. And basically because this this thread exists, I know that we are like doing something right. That We are providing a home for people. It's by someone named Beth. I don't want to give too much information, but she says this. Embarrassing question. Could someone explain the concrete difference between Rogala and Babga besi- aside from shape? I didn't grow up in an Ashkenazi household, and I'm dating a very Ashkenazi man. We are two years into this, and at this point, I'm embarrassed to ask. So this is like a pastry-shaming question where, like, you've been dating an Ashkenazi guy, (laughs) you never asked what the difference was, and it's too late. So well, the difference
2: s- is about 1,100 calories. But
1: so basically, there are 60 comments <laughs> on this thread, and people are like stepping in to help Beth out, and they were like, "We will not let this affect your relationship." So someone says a rogala is a small pastry. A babka gets cut in slices. Someone says totally different. Rogala and people, some people spell it rogalach, and some people just spell it rugala.
2: Rugala is the singular. rugalach is the plural. Oh,
0: like kinderlach, children. Oh,
1: Correct. I never, I never. Okay. I thought it was just people who don't say the ch. You're welcome. Wow. Amazing. Thank you. Look, we're learning so much. So someone says rugelach is a cookie made with a cream cheese dough. Babka is a sweet brioche type bread slash cake. Either can be made with assorted fillings. Both are rolled. Basically, the whole thing is that babka is a yeast baked cake that we get.
2: Rugelach is first base. Babka <laughs> is going all the way.
1: Well, how, how about this? Someone says a health teacher once told me if you're too embarrassed to buy condoms, maybe you shouldn't be having sex. Maybe the same rule <laughs> applies to asking about and eating rugelach and babka. Oh my! <laughs> and then someone someone responds to say many rugelach are parv. <laughs> this, this this thread just goes into like it's like a talmudic disposition on both of these. And how about this? Also note that what Israelis call rugelach are more individual size babkas. Really like that complicated. is
2: absolutely correct. By the way, our rugelach are like insanely large. So
1: I think this could be like you the see next... Stephanie
2: in my country, all the men come with very big rugelach. <laughs>
1: So finally, original poster writes, this thread has blown up so much more than I anticipated it would, and I love
2: it. <laughs> yeah. She said, oh, my boyfriend my. and I have now split up. Thank <laughs> you for nothing.
0: <laughs> what when, I want to know is, when she says that she's dating a very Ashkenazi man, what do you, what does she mean he's very Ashkenazi? <laughs>
1: well, his eyes are rugeloff and his mouth is a vodka.
0: <laughs> he literally subsists on kugel, brisket, and, and Philip Roth novels. That's, what, that's all he does. He's actually literally a herring.
2: of the Jews. News of the Jews.
0: Uh-huh. A little news of the Jews. Um, first of all, we just want to point out that the uh, planning commissioner in Vallejo, California, who had to resign his office after he threw a cat during a Zoom meeting, we don't believe was Jewish. We just want to get that out there. We think not a Jew. But we did want to ask our cat correspondent, Stephanie Butnick, is is there was this an important moment for cat lovers? Like, did this fly around the cat Internet in a different way?
1: A lot of people sent it to me. Similarly to how um, a lot of people are sending me all those New Yorker cartoons about like cats during quarantine. So you don't have to send it to me because I've already seen it. <laughs> But so I think the problem is like cats love computers. I recently learned it's because the keyboards are warm, which I didn't know. So basically cats like to sit on your computers. Oh. My cat is especially drawn to Zoom conversations. It's like he knows when the camera's on. I He was in both of my calls this morning. Um,
2: and if I may, Stephanie, I don't know if this is normal, but like for some reason, I always see his butt and never his face. Like he always kind of like like a truck. He backs into the camera, like <laughs> making meow, 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 sounds like.
1: There is not a Zoom call he hasn't put his butt right. in. Like he just loves putting his butt.
2: So that one was for
0: Stephanie. This one's for you, Liel. You're just like, you're playing
1: me off here. I could go on forever. I haven't even commented on the video.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. Go (laughs) ahead. I'm just trying to.
1: I just think that like, I don't advocate throwing cats, but like, you (laughs) could drop a cat like, and he lands on his feet. I actually didn't watch the video. I thought it'd be too upsetting. So I can't actually speak to what he actually did.
0: I think I have thrown a cat from time to time. We've had three cats, Sid and I none of them have liked me. Some of them have scratched me, and I, I'm I'm with this guy. Like I, I didn't watch the video actually because I thought it might be disturbing. But like, if you've owned a cat, you've probably thrown a cat.
2: <laughs> yes, J. Crew. Let us know what where you stand.
0: <laughs> that story was tailor made for Stephanie Taylor Butnick. This one is for Liel Ben Yehoshua Benavi uh, sion
2: Brussels, Ghent, Belgium. <laughs> I am
0: Belgium. The Buffalo Trace Distillery in Kentucky has worked, apparently, according to the New York Times, with the Chicago Rabbinical Council, which is a very hardcore rabbinical council. I've met, like, mushkiachs from their rabbinical council. They don't mess around. To come out with a line of kosher American whiskeys. There's a bourbon, a rye, and a weeded bourbon. And they were released April 16th, and the Times ran a story. And our super listener, Gavi uh, Savit-Woods, pointed out to me, he's like, wait a second, all whiskeys are kosher. Like, this is kind of a big con, because (laughs) spirits are kosher, right? This is
2: a spiritual spirit. It's very different. So,
0: like, basically, it just means that some guys from the Chicago Rabbinical Council are collecting a little cashish while supervising. Somebody will write in and tell me if I'm wrong here, but spirits are kosher. So, I don't know.
2: I support everything about this. I love Buffalo Trace. This also reminds me of the one time where I was giving a talk in Kentucky and I was in a very nice restaurant and I was enjoying me some bourbons. And then I had counted up how many I've had, and it was eleven to that point. And I figured it would be time to have my bourbon mitzvah, uh, in which I just ordered two more uh and had me thirteen. And had had I had rabbinic supervision for that moment, you know, course of my life would have been different. <laughs>
0: Uh, and finally, we—I don't know if we bid farewell to—but we send our condolences to the other J Crew, the outfitter that gave me so many roll neck sweaters in high school, which has filed for bankruptcy protection this week. It doesn't mean they're going away. It just means that they're going to hold their head a little less high. Any feelings about this, Stephanie or Liel?
1: I mean, if you read the article, you first you're like, oh my god, they're shutting down J Crew. They actually aren't. It's just going to get sold to some like from one private equity company to another, and then you still be able to buy J Crew clothing. But um, you know, as you know, our fellow moniker outfitter, yeah. we're sad for them. I want to say also, our plan worked. It took it took an unexpected turn, but now that name's
2: ours. This is what happens when you mess with us. You come up with a Netflix show called Unorthodox. You're gonna get bashed in the press. You come up with a super name like J Crew, taking it from us. You're gonna go bankrupt. Yep. Don't, don't forbrengan with us. When I
0: was right out of college and I was in New York working one ridiculous job, uh, I had a friend who had an even more ridiculous job, which is that my friend Hope Wachter, before becoming a high-powered attorney, uh, was taken a year or two before law school, and Hope worked at J. Crew as a copywriter. And I actually walked around their space and I saw the little sticky notes where they were, you know, working up the copy, like, what color to call this and what adjective to use here. And one time she got me into a sample sale that was simply to die
2: for.
1: Mark, I love the idea of you at a sample sale like fighting other people for sweaters.
2: (laughs) Smacking them with a bow tie over the head. (laughs) That
0: braided belt was going home with no one but me. Our Gentile of the Week is one of the great Gentile authors working in the English language. It's Nick Hornby. He is the British author of About a Boy, High Fidelity, Juliet Naked, and one of my favorite bits of occasional writing, which is the Stuff I've Been Reading column in the Believer magazine. We are so excited to have Nick Hornby here as our Gentile of the Week. Welcome, sir.
3: Hello. Thank you so much for letting me be a Gentile of the Week. Have you ever been a Gentile of the Week before? Never in my life. Well, unless I am every week, I don't know. I mean... Every time you
0: leave the room, the Jews who have been in there say, he's kind of a Gentile this week. <laughs> what a goyish week for Nick Hornby. So we want to move in deep into your oeuvre, <laughs> but let's start with the task at hand, which is we all were, were re-watching the old John Cusack movie, and then we watched the Zoe Kravitz reboot on Hulu of High Fidelity. Why did this book have such legs? Like, Why do you think it's become something that speaks to people in 2020 as it did in 1996 or so?
3: Well, it's been interesting watching the book skip generations When it came out, I was 36 or something when it was published and it was read pretty much by people of my age. And they kept coming to signings as I wrote more books and got older and they got older. But then I started to notice that there were 30 year olds and 25 year olds coming to the readings 20 years after the book was written, which was kind of cool. And then this whole vinyl thing happened and vinyl as a contrast, I guess, to Spotify, that kids who were really, really super into music still wanted to put their stamp on the world in some way. So they were spending money on records and whoever's idea it was to reboot it saw that you could still say things about the modern world through the prism of the book.
0: I like the book and the movie both a tremendous amount, but I remember that when I read the book, I did think that the story was different in British than in American, (laughs) partly because you guys have a more calcified class structure, right? That in America, certainly in the 90s, you know, a hipster who owns a vinyl record shop, even back before vinyl was hip, when it was just a medium for music, but that could be like a cool person who went to a good university and then did that. Whereas Rob, in the book, he's not someone who could of aspired to Oxford. Was that interesting seeing it move to a country like America without that same kind of class chasm?
3: Yes. It wasn't something I thought about too much. And uh, we had a sort of mediator in Stephen Frears, the director who's English and I think understood the English moroseness that was part of the book and was there to make sure that they didn't get too American happy (laughs) when they were making it. He did a fine job. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, they did. Yes. But yeah, I think the people that wrote it, who I became very close to, they saw what they wanted to see in it. And they thought it was about them in a very good way for an adaptation. They thought it was about them growing up. And of course, they didn't see that class thing. So it wasn't in the movie. And the things that make no sense to people when they're adapting, it's best that they go.
2: You mentioned earlier that the vinyl renaissance sparked some interest in the story. Yeah, we, having rewatched the movie and the series and re-read the book, had a little conversation earlier in which we basically said, "Look, there's something that strikes, certainly Mark and me less so Stephanie, as a little bit off about that because we don't think that kids interact with music now, even if they listen to it on vinyl. We just don't think kids interact with music the same way. Like when we were young, and part of the reason why the book spoke so well to us, right, is music defines." everything about you and now it just seems to me like disposable background music do you buy that or am I just being ridiculous and old
3: well I think a huge change is that kids walk around with something in their pocket that gives them access to every piece of recorded music ever made And the fundamental shift to a musical psyche that that makes. I mean, I don't know about you, but I bought vinyl when I was a kid. And when I was 14, I had one record. And then three weeks later, I had two records. And a year later, I had 20 records. And that's how I built my collection. I knew the crackles in between tracks because I'd listened to them so often. I'm not necessarily sure that that was a good thing. You know, because you can remember that terrible feeling of having to commit to what you just bought, even if you didn't like it very much, (laughs) you made yourself like it.
0: Look, Billy Joel's The Bridge was a very important album. (laughs) (laughs) For the month that it was my only acquisition from Leechmere's in Springfield, Massachusetts, it was a classic.
3: Yep. Yeah, and you had to make yourself like that record. You had to. I remember buying one as a result of a review in an English magazine, and it was way too out there for me. An English progressive rock band called Van de Graaff Generator. (laughs) The horror when I got home and put it on. I've since spoken to the journalist who wrote that review and asked for my money back. (laughs) You know, and kids at school were asking to borrow it, and I was like, no, I can't spare it. (laughs) Because I didn't want them to hear what I'd spent money on. And... My kids, they just go off all over the place. So it's like, Dad, are the Rolling Stones any good? Dad, is, are the Ramones any good? And then they go off and they listen to them. They come back and they say, I like that. That was great. And then they move on to something else. And I guess the connection isn't as deep because of that, but they know a lot more and they've listened to a lot more. But the
1: thing about the remake, the latest remake, the show that works so well is that it's it's set now, right? And yeah. obviously, you know, the idea of making a playlist for Zoe Kravitz is something very different than making a playlist for John Cusack, you know, like the technicality of what that meant. But I argued with my gentleman co-host earlier that... For young people, music is almost everything. Their entire lives are scored. And it's because they don't have to walk around with a boot box. They have one. They have their little pods. Their lives are just one long soundtrack. And so I think that the reason this still works today is because actually music does play that same important role in
3: people's lives. It just looks a little different. They listen to more music than I did because I didn't have that much time or access or music. <laughs> so as far as I could tell, my kids listen three, four hours a day. And they can listen while they're on their bikes. They can listen when they're walking down the street. And they've got a lot to listen to. I I just couldn't do any of that. So I do think the connection is very deep. But I do think it's different. And I suspect theirs is superior.
0: Leal and I are going to have to go rethink everything. Because Nick Hornby told us we
2: were wrong. (laughs)
1: Because he agrees with me. (laughs) This is
2: some tough medicine. Now we have to re-re-watch the book, the movie, and (laughs) re-re-read the book.
3: (laughs) Well, my my 17-year-old just heard stuff that I would never have got anywhere near, you know, because I had to take a punt all the time on, am I going to like this? Is it going to be worth my money? There are great records that I didn't own until I was in my 40s because my friend had it, so I didn't need to buy it.
0: Right. right.
3: And, and they, they don't have any of that.
0: You wrote a piece for Rolling Stone speaking back to critics, I guess, who were very protective of the original High Fidelity movie with John Cusack, in which you basically said, look, it's not for you. It's for everyone who loves the book. And Rob can be um, Black female American Rob, just as Rob was British Rob, and then white American Rob. And did you get some hostility? I mean, I'm not that insane. I love the original movie, but I was excited to love the TV show as well. But are there some people who are like, you know, have that sort of Rush fan level intensity about the band they love with regards to the original?
3: Yeah, I mean, I had it when the movie moved to America, people saying, how could you let that happen? (laughs) That was before they'd even seen the movie. They were cross about it. But Zoe is a black woman. So what she's supposed to do if the book speaks to her, that's her version of it. And it really pissed me off, the idea that they seem to be thinking that someone in Hollywood had said, oh, now we've got to do everything the other way around, because that's what the modern world demands. And I knew that the spirit of it was not like that, that Zoe had never thought about it in that way.
0: So you've written, what, six novels now? Seven? I don't know. Something like that. But you've also written screenplays, and now you have another novel coming out next year. How do you decide when the next project is going to be a novel, when it's going to be a screenplay, when it's going to be a TV show? A
3: podcast. A podcast. <laughs> a, a record. I've been waiting for the podcast invite, and so I've had to get on with writing. But uh, how do I decide? Well, I mean, a book is a big project. You know, it's a couple of years And if I can break it up by doing something else, I will. So if there's a movie idea or an approach of some kind, then I might think about it in the middle of something. And Brooklyn and Wild were both adaptations and people came to me to do them and I didn't want to miss out on doing them, so I took time out. And then there are things like, The little show I wrote, State of the Union, with Rosamund Pike and Chris O'Dowd, which is 10-minute episodes, that was really fun in between things, and I had no real sense that it would ever get made, but I wanted to write it because I wanted to break my day up, basically.
2: So, look, there's a lot I love about your writing, but if I had to pick kind of like one sentence to sum it, it's this constant struggle of mainly men who are lonely and at odds with society to kind of connect, to find their way in, to create these emotional engagement. And these struggles usually pay off in an incredible way because the books really are about this battle for human connection, right? This hunger to be with other people, which strikes me as so poignant and so moving and so incredibly meaningful. And yet, as I look at generations who are who are so, and this is something we were talking about earlier, also about the show, these people are connected in the new version of Zoe Kravitz. They're connected to hundreds and thousands of people via their smartphones, and yet they strike me as way more profoundly lonely and alone than the people in the movie version 20 years ago would have been because they didn't have all that. They actually needed to live in a Nick Hornby universe where you have to break out and talk to other people. Do you see that? And, and as a writer, does it kind of like fuck with the process? Do you ask yourself, like, how do I write when everyone's like online all day and disembodied?
3: No, I, I still think the same basic issues and problems are there. I mean, the, the end of Juliet Naked is a chat thread about a record that that guy's made. We go into some very weird places now on the internet to find people who are exactly like us. It always used to seem to me a miracle when I was younger if I met someone who knew who Big Star were or you know, any of those bands that rock fans nerd out about. But of course now you can find them quite easily online. But it doesn't really make any difference to the essential sense that you're at odds with everyone who's surrounding you. I feel right at home, actually, in the modern world. It's just made it a little bit more um, complicated to navigate, but in quite a rich way.
0: See, unlike Liel, you sound very psychologically healthy. And unlike me, (laughs) it makes me think of whether Britishness has something to do with it. Because although you can be a morose people, a lot of the writers I know who are very good poets of leisure, of just reading a book or listening to a song, are British. I mean, I think of Jeff Dyer. I think of you. I think Martin Amos very much has that mode. Francis Spufford has that mode, where just you'll sort of spend a week or two ambling or thinking or going deep into some new hobby and then write a beautiful essay about it, whereas Americans seem to always be working on their resumes. Am I onto something there?
3: (laughs) I tell you what, you're talking about those particular writers who are of a similar age, The difference between being an American kid in the 60s and 70s and an English kid in the 60s and 70s was so profound, you cannot imagine. I mean, we had an hour of television, children's television, between 5pm and 6pm. There was nothing really child-friendly the rest of the time. TV in England in the 60s during the day was literally a picture of a little girl standing by a blackboard which enabled people in a TV showroom to sharpen the picture. There was nothing else. (laughs) And I think we were a much poorer country. We were suffering from the Second World War until probably the mid-60s. And I think we were bored. I mean, I think me, Jeff, Martin Amis, we probably read way too much. We listened to too much music. We weren't driving around in our daddy's T-bird. Nobody had a car. We were waiting for buses You know, in the 1970s, there was a period where there was a three-day working week and no electricity in the evenings, and it was just bizarre to grow up in this country. And then everything kind of converged, really, in the 80s and 90s, and we became more or less the same place. But our upbringings were really, really different.
1: So you've been so successful as a writer that a number of your books have been made into movies. Is it strange to you if someone knows your name through a movie version of the book? I mean, like if someone says, oh, in education, oh, Juliet Naked, I, I saw those movies. Is that strange for you to reconcile?
3: The truth is a lot of people don't notice your name on the movies. They notice your name on the book. I literally once had an argument with a woman on a plane about High Fidelity, about whether I'd written it. Because <laughs> <laughs> she started asking me questions. and said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a writer. And she said, what, what have you written that I would know? And I said, I don't know how much you read, but I wrote a book called High Fidelity. She said, I've seen that movie 15 times. There was no book first. Otherwise, I would have noticed. <laughs> and I said, well... There was, and I did, and, and she <laughs> said, well, there wasn't, and you didn't, and we didn't speak for the rest of the flight, uh, and, you know, the number of people who've seen an education but didn't know I had anything to do with it.
0: It's a great movie, by the way. Yeah,
3: so good. I love that movie, but they know sometimes who directed it, and they know that Kerry Mulligan was in it, but they don't necessarily notice that I wrote it, and that's fine. So they
1: think you wrote a book about the Boston Red Sox? pitch. Fe- yeah. oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're so, like you really get American culture. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. An education haunts me, by the way. so good. It's like under my skin. I saw it only once and it's so creepy in a good way. The the exploitation, the-
1: Also the Jewishness.
0: Right? Well, the Jewishness, yes. <laughs> yes. Well, and, and that brings us to your most important role here, which is as the Gentile in the room. Um, we understand that you uh, responded to our invitation to bring a question to this internationally recognized panel of Jews. What can we tell you?
3: Well, I want to know about Arabs because they're like the craziest thing I've ever heard of that you can put a wire around a community and all rules are suspended within that wire. And it makes me think, well, you just live like me then because I've got no religion (laughs) and I don't have to put a wire up. So... What's the deal? What was the thinking behind it? So I'll take a first crack.
0: Between the three hosts, we can usually come up with one sensible answer. (laughs) So an Eruv is a rabbinic workaround. One of the 39 things you can't do on the Sabbath is carry, carry stuff. Yeah. So this would mean that if you go outside and you're carrying your child or carrying a coat or a bottle for your kid around the neighborhood, you would be in violation. And an Orthodox Jew doesn't want to be in violation of that. And so... The idea is that you put a string around the whole neighborhood, which turns the whole area into one household, into one domicile.
3: Oh, okay. So
0: you're never actually carrying outside the house because you've created one big house. It's like all your backyard. So it doesn't actually mean that within the era of like, no rules apply and you can have throuples and drugs <laughs> and, you know.
1: And cheeseburgers. <laughs>
0: right. Yeah. right. It's not that. Right. It specifically relates to the, the prohibition. It's just
3: bacon all the time <laughs> under there. No, but what about driving and elevators? And all that stuff
2: No No you, you may not
3: Not within an Erev
2: No, nope. No 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 It's just carrying stuff ah. It's just carrying your bag Or your Torah <laughs> book Or whatever it is But I like
0: your idea Of an Erev That's like a good Reform liberal Jewish
2: Erev
3: It's like a hall pass <laughs>
2: His idea of an Arab is basically Vegas, right? <laughs> like you go there and do whatever you want.
3: Are there any Jews who are saying, oh, it's fine, we're in the Arab? I've, I haven't checked out what the Arab allows us to do, but I'm sure this is fine. <laughs>
2: I will say that the Jews who say that are probably, probably don't know what an Arab is.
3: <laughs> in preparation for today, I looked at Arabs in Manhattan. And Manhattan is basically one giant Arab. <laughs> Right. I mean, it's huge. It's huge. Don't tell everyone.
0: Basically, it means Orthodox moms can carry their babies on Saturdays around the era of that.
3: I thought it was so brilliant. We're not as
0: clever as you think we are.
3: Yeah. Okay.
0: The era you're talking about is what we refer to as a Jeremy Corbyn era, <laughs> which is actually sort of insensitive to actual Judaism, but sort of gently faints at Jewishness.
3: Okay. All
0: right.
1: Well, it's really funny because it's like a very brilliant but very boring workaround, right? Because it allows you to do something very basic, right? Which is just like carry things from one place to another. But I do like being in Manhattan and looking up and you're like, what's that string? Oh, (laughs) and then you sort of remember where you are. Oh, so you notice it. Oh, yeah,
2: yeah. It's very visible. Yeah,
1: it's like a thin string. If you look up on 6th Avenue, you'll see it. Oh, wow.
2: And here's the amazing thing about it. The book of the Talmud that deals with the laws of the Sabbath begins with talking about this. And then kind of when you get to think about this, you realize that what this really does is force you to think about the differences between the private and the public domain rather like who am i and what am i supposed to do at home versus outside and what does outside mean is it my neighborhood is it my city is it my you know country it really kind of puts you in this philosophical mindset
3: yeah that's fantastic
2: Leo i never thought about that but as we've talked about in the show before i walk my dogs barefoot
0: when the weather's nice like i but i would never go downtown i would stay within about one square
3: he's saying you don't put boots on your dog <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> Right.
0: My dog's not a very observant Jew. And
3: so it is
0: interesting, like, right? I do actually treat my street, which happens to be within the New Haven area as part of my household in a way that I don't if I'm going to New York City. That's your area. Oh, that's so interesting. Mm-hmm. What a great question, Nick. Have we answered your question?
3: Yeah. I have to say I'm a bit relieved about the carrying thing because I had always had it in my head that it was a string that allowed you just to suspend all the draggy laws of Judaism. <laughs> all
2: morality. <laughs> that would be
3: amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought you were having a much better time.
2: (laughs) We think that the upcoming novel will be about a young rabbi walking around Manhattan, (laughs) putting up an air roof, listening to great music.
1: Nick, I want to respond to your question with a question which comes in from our listeners. They say that they read somewhere that puzzles are a part of your creative process. Is this true?
3: Yes, completely true. Jigsaw puzzles. All my career, I've been battling with the idea of what you do in between sentences because a book is 80,000 words long, say, a screenplay is 120 pages. Those words don't take long to write, but of course, books take a long time to write. So it's what I do in between sentences that takes care of my mental health, basically. And if you go on the internet and start watching old football matches in between sentences, you're lost. So I tried to do something wordy, and then I do the very hard Guardian cryptic puzzle, but then I get stuck. So I'm stuck on my novel, and I'm stuck on a crossword. And eventually, because we always do a jigsaw puzzle on summer holiday, eventually I thought, oh, you never get stuck on a jigsaw. You're always working, and you give up on one bit and work on another bit. And it doesn't occupy your head in the way that YouTube occupies your head, or the news at the moment. So yeah, I've always got a jigsaw puzzle on the go, and I really recommend it.
1: So you were like uniquely prepared for this quarantine, because you've stocked up on jigsaw puzzles already.
3: Yeah, I have to say the quarantine hasn't made a huge amount of difference to my life.
0: (laughs) You're just writing and puzzling. Just a little
3: less book buying, a little more of the reading. A little bit more of the writing, actually. Is there like a puzzle
1: brand you like or something you could like a secret one you could tell us about?
3: the New Yorker puzzle company is actually pretty good they have weird shapes as well I'd say the greatest jigsaw I ever did was the cover of Sergeant Peppers which is just fantastic because you you learn a lot all the faces at the top you think who the hell is that and every now and again I looked up who they were and you found that they played for centre forward for Liverpool in 1955 or you know all that kind of thing and then the flowers that spell out the Beatles was the single hardest thing oh my I've ever done in a Working day. I mean, much more than writing.
2: That was much better, by the way, than the uh, white album puzzle. <laughs> white album.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember what book you were working on when you were doing that puzzle? I think it would have been Funny Girl.
0: Good book. Thank you. <laughs> Tell us about the upcoming novel, Spill All the Beans. What's it about?
3: Uh, it's brilliantly contemporary. It was finished right before the virus. So it seems now like it might as well be written in the 19th century. It's a relationship between a 42-year-old white woman and a 22-year-old black guy in the year of the referendum.
0: Nick Hornby, you are a righteous Gentile, and we would like to invite you into our era of Sin when we construct it. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on Unorthodox. I hope, will you come back when your book is out?
3: I would absolutely love to.
0: Fabulous. We will make it happen.
3: I'm going to think of a a really tricky question next time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That was one of our top five best questions.
0: For more on Nick Hornby, you can go to his website, nickhornbyofficial.com.
1: Hey J. Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. Tell me,
4: tell me, in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write?
0: To the mailbox. First up, a nice, kind compliment for our co-host, Stephanie Butnick.
5: Hi, this is Anne Rubin from Elkins Park, Pennsylvania, and I want to commend Stephanie on speaking out so strongly about the comparison of what we are going through to Anne Frank. Anne Frank quarantined, which is probably not the right word, for two years and then died. We are quarantining to save lives. The comparison is abominable. Thank you for all you do for the Jewish people in the world.
0: And now a little check in from the Highlands of Scotland.
4: Cordial greetings. I am probably not part of your target audience. I'm Scottish and not Jewish. I just downloaded your uh, Queen of Quarantine episode, and about 10 minutes in, after the Hebrew school session, Scotland was mentioned in the context of anti-Semitism. Oh no, growing up. My head was in my hands, wincing at the prospect of what might come round the corner. It turned out to be a greedy shlemiel of an anti-Semitic landlord in Edinburgh, treating his Jewish tenant in a thoroughly bigoted manner. But then what do I get? I think I'm on record with saying that Scots are my favourite people in the world, and that Scottish Jews are the best Jews in the world. Well, what can I say? You're setting the graciousness back kind of high here, and it is very much appreciated. I'll go and listen to the rest of it now. Very best wishes from Glasgow. Charles. Thanks for that
0: call, Charles Hilliard. And yes, indeed, Scots are the best people, and Scottish Jews are the best Jews. They're sort of the anti-Belgians. Ha <laughs> ha! And now, finally, we get this query from a listener. Something that's always
1: been opaque to me is Jewish mourning. I didn't grow up Jewish, so the first time that I attended Shiva was last year when a dear friend and mentor of mine passed away. I felt the whole ritual was very comforting, but it must be slightly overwhelming for the mourners. My dad died last week,
6: and so now I have to confront what Jewish mourning means for me as well as what it means in this very particular circumstance that we found ourselves in. I guess I just wanted to hear from everybody else what they
1: find comforting about Jewish morning traditions and see if anything resonates from there with me. Thanks so much, bye.
0: First of all, we're, we're very sorry for your loss. And second of all, we're so touched that you brought this question to us. Uh, Stephanie, what would you say to our listener?
1: You know, the thing that I'm trying to keep in mind about this virtual era that we're in, and it came up with Passover and it comes up again with all sorts of services we hear about, is the idea that you can connect with so many more people, even if you can't do so physically, right? Like relatives from around the world you can see in an instance. I want you to take solace in the, this idea that, that you can have connection, even though you can't gather traditionally in the way you would want to in these times. I want to think that there is now an ability to to congregate to have community in, in in a way that looks a little bit different but is really really important still.
2: I love that. I want to add one thing to that, which is which is something that I do very often. I try to do it almost any time that someone I had known or someone who is related to someone I know passes away. There's a really beautiful tradition. It is not that well known I think outside the orthodox community called Studying Mishnayos, in which after a person dies, you study a small part of the Mishnah, which is part of the Talmud, and you sort of declare in a prayer before you begin that you are doing this basically to elevate the soul and to honor the memory of the deceased. Now, look, you could do it with, with the parts of the Mishnah, or you could do it with any other classical Jewish text, or frankly, you could do it with any text that means something to you, but I love this idea of sitting and taking a moment in complete silence to concentrate on a text and tell yourself that you are doing this as a kind of um, tribute to a person who meant so much to you, and that by doing so, you are sort of aiming your kavana, your your intentionality for that person's soul, which is also a a kind of recognition, I think that, you know, the journey isn't over. The, the a, a very significant part of the journey is over. The person will no longer be here with us in physical form. But y- y- this is not a goodbye so much as it is a transition into a different phase of the relationship. That person will always be present, will always be a significant part of your life. And, and by doing so, by honoring him, you're you're bringing him in to your soul.
0: I would add only that one thing we do when we can't say Kaddish, because we don't have a quorum of 10, and so we can't say the, the mourner's Kaddish for a loved one uh, who has died, is we say Psalms. So, And I saw this a lot in Pittsburgh. It's what you do before the body is buried. It's what you do if you're trying to observe the one-year anniversary or or other anniversaries of their death, but you don't have the quorum of 10, you take out a book of psalms. I mean, you can download the psalms onto your phone and just pick one and just chant psalm. Um, It's just, it's another text. And and of course, it's some of the most beautiful poetry ever written. So absolutely. We hope this has helped. Drop us a line. Let us know. Let us know if this got to the heart of what you were asking. And we wish you much peace in your journey after this loss.
1: And we're here for you. Uh, We're here. Our whole community is here. And I hope you know that. So Rachel Rosenthal has written a few very interesting pieces for Tablet about her own difficulty with infertility and what it means as part of the observant Jewish community. And so I wanted to get her on the show to talk to her a little bit about what she's been going through and how coronavirus and the change to the world has affected that as well. I am here with Rachel Rosenthal. She teaches Talmud at the Jewish Theological Seminary and has a PhD in rabbinic literature. She writes frequently about the intersection of Jewish text and modern life for Tablet and other publications. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. So Rachel, I always love the articles you write for Tablet just because you bring this really, really smart, ancient yet modern perspective. And
6: you wrote a piece for Tablet in January that was a bit different. So the piece I wrote in January was about my and my husband's experiences with infertility. In our case, persistent miscarriage. I had my third miscarriage in December and I found that in addition to the emotional pain of wanting to have a baby and not being able to, and also the physical pain that I was experiencing, there was also this sense of isolation because people around us didn't necessarily know what was happening. And I decided that there was no reason to feel that third kind of pain. And so I decided to write about the experience. I wrote a piece for Tablet about the experiences with the miscarriages, but also in particular connecting it to the way that our miscarriages intersected with the Jewish calendar in ways that ended up being really challenging. My first miscarriage was three days before Rosh Hashanah, and then my second miscarriage was during Hanukkah. And with Rosh Hashanah being very much associated with fertility and birth, both in the traditional Torah readings and also in the liturgy, and then Hanukkah being associated with miracles, I felt almost like I was being slammed over the head with what it was that we wanted that we didn't have. So the Haftorah for the first day of Rosh Hashanah comes from the very beginning of the Book of Samuel, and it tells the story of a woman named Chana. And Chana is married to a man named Elkanah, and Elkanah actually has two wives. He has his wife, Hana, who's been unable to have children, and he has his wife, Panina, who's been able to have many children. And so you end up with a situation wherein you have one wife who's been able to give her husband all of these sons, and you have the other wife who it seems he favors, but who has not been able to bear children for him. And it creates this strange dynamic wherein Elkanah says, I have plenty of children, right? And he says to Hana, am I not more dear to you than seven sons? And she basically says, no, that's not enough for me. I want to be a mother. And she has this prayer that's put forward. And that's the story that we read on the first day of Rosh Hashanah. And on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, the Haftarah comes from the book of Jeremiah. And one of the most famous lines in that Haftarah is, Rachel mevaka al-banaha. Rachel cries on account of her children, and the Rachel there is referring to Rachel, the matriarch from the Bible, who's similar to Hannah and Penina, Her sister, Leah, is married to the same man as she is, to Jacob. Penina and Hannah are sister wives, but not sisters. But Rachel and Leah are sisters. And again, what you have is the wife that Jacob loves is Rachel. The wife who's able to bear him children is Leah. And at one point, Rachel goes to Jacob and says, give me children or I will die. And ultimately, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because she dies while giving birth to her second child, Benjamin. And the understanding of this line in the Haftura, Rachel cries for her sons, is that Rachel, all she wanted was to have these children, and now they've betrayed God and moved away. But in both of these Haftura, you really see these very strong images coming forward of women wanting children, women having children women longing for this experience of motherhood and also the ways in which it doesn't always turn out how they want or expect it to.
1: You're going through this experience yourself. You obviously also have such a rich level of knowledge of rabbinic text. Was that helpful to you to have these examples, or was it sort of just another reminder of something that you were already going through?
6: Since I ever started teaching Torah, which was when I was 24, I have found that I find a comfort when I'm teaching that even if everything in my life is going terribly, even after the miscarriages, that I was able to sort of pull it together to teach in a way that wasn't always the case in the rest of my life. So that's always been something interesting. But every once in a while, you hit a text that really triggers you. So actually, to give you an example from today, I was teaching a text from Moed Katan, and it's all about how you shouldn't throw fingernails on the floor because women who step on fingernails, if they're pregnant, they'll miscarry but you can throw fingernails on the floor in the Beit Midrash, in the study hall, because women don't go in the study hall, right? And it felt I felt like the Talmud was like personally targeting me in that moment of, you know, well, maybe woman, if you got out of the study hall where you don't belong, you wouldn't keep having miscarriages. And of course, that's not at all my theology, but those are the moments where it really has a needle. But in another case, a text I was teaching a few weeks ago from Yevamot, it talks about how women are not obligated in having children, which is really interesting. Only men are obligated to have children. Women are are not. One explanation for that is that we never give commandments to people that can put their lives in danger. And because childbirth and pregnancy can be dangerous for women, that's why they're not commanded. It's sort of funny how much this comes up in your scholarly life. But,
1: you know, these conversations about infertility, about miscarriage, aren't necessarily something that a lot of people are having very publicly, even in the Jewish community. I mean, your first article is called Talking About Miscarriage, right? This idea that you're actually just Breaking the silence in some way and saying, like, we are allowed to talk about this stuff. So I'm curious, in your life, in your community, what is the discourse around children?
6: And was it true that you really weren't finding that conversation about infertility there? Those are two separate questions. So to answer the second one first, I found that people often spoke about pregnancy loss only once they had had a successful live birth. So people often talked about miscarriages that they had had, even trouble they had had conceiving. Once they had a child, there was this feeling of once you have your happy ending, then you can talk about this. But for the people who are in it, hearing about the people who had this really hard experience but then come through the other end and now they're happy, that's not always helpful because... Not everyone who wants to have children gets to, that's just the reality of the world. But at the same time, there's a tremendous vulnerability that comes with getting up, whether in front of people and speaking about it, or in my case, writing an article and saying, I'm in this really painful space and I don't know what you can say to me to make it better. I'm just gonna put it out there that I'm in a lot of pain right now. People don't know what to say to that you're worried about what people are gonna say. You know, one of the strange things for me is I've now written two pieces about this experience. The first one being the piece about my miscarriages and the second piece about the suspension of fertility treatments because of the coronavirus. One of the interesting things about it is that people often want to talk to me about my articles. People who are not in this experience of infertility, of difficulty having children, although I hear from a lot of those people also, but for people who are not in that experience, they often want to talk to me about it. And I find myself really reticent to talk to them about it, which is strange because in certain ways I've been really public, but in other ways it's still very difficult to talk to people who aren't trying to have children or who already have the children that they want to have. At the same time, I think there's this real hunger among women and men having this experience to find communities wherein they can talk about it. I've gotten so many messages from people I don't know, in addition to many people I do know who I didn't know had had miscarriages or fertility troubles, but I've gotten so many messages from people who are just looking for people to talk to saying, I'm so grateful that you said something and here's my story. I think I heard from 50 women after my first piece was published saying a version of this was also my story, and thank you for saying something. On the first question, the question of the reality of the community, I live in New York City on the Upper West Side. The Jewish community here is really vibrant, which is great. It's a fairly young community, and it means that there's a lot of people with young children, people having children. After my third miscarriage, there was a period of time where I couldn't go to synagogue, which is very unlike me. I go to synagogue every week on time, I've been that way since high school, I'm very into going to school, I really enjoy it. But just everywhere I look, there are little kids, which usually is a wonderful sign of the vibrancy of the community, but it's really painful. No one's doing anything to me. I've been luckier than many because I actually haven't gotten so many comments about when are you having children. But the more you see someone who's your age or who's younger than you, who's pregnant with their third or their fourth, that's really difficult because you look at yourself and you say, I don't know if I'm ever going to have that.
1: I guess I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the modern Orthodox community and what some of those broader expectations are for someone who isn't as familiar.
6: So I had a friend call me the other day because she had seen my most recent piece and she had also gone through IVF. She's the same age as I am. I recently turned 36 a couple of weeks ago. And she said, you know, when I gave birth to my daughter after she had a number of years of fertility challenges, she said, I realized in the hospital, all of the women there were like 40. But in our community, I feel so, so, so old all of the time for the fact that I don't have children yet. I felt old when I got married at 33, despite the fact that in New York City, that's actually close to average. You know, I went to my first wedding when I was 21 of one of my friends. And I have friends who started having kids at 24, 25, so I have friends now who have kids who are 10, 11, 12 years old, and it's really hard not to feel like you're behind. I'm one of three, uh, but my husband's one of seven. We did not plan to have seven, but while seven is on the larger side, I know a number of people who are roughly my age who have three, four, five kids, and so... Part of me says it's not a race, but it's hard not to feel like you're behind. And when you live in a world where not nobody, but most people are not having their first children in their late 30s, early 40s in the way that might be happening more in the secular world, in addition to any desires you feel internally, I have to be honest, I do feel external pressure. I wish that I didn't feel external pressure, but the generation gaps are so much smaller in the community in which I live. And it's compounded by the fact that in the modern Orthodox community, women are also, the norm is to like have professional careers, work outside of the home, which again is true in parts of the Haredi community also, but there's all this pressure on us to achieve professionally and academically, and then also to get married and to have children, and have many children and be able to send them to Jewish day school, right? All of these things that are expected. And when you want it yourself, you feel those pressures even more, even if people aren't actually imposing them on you, because that's just the model you see around me. When I look around in shul, the people I see who are in my cohort have multiple children. And I'm aware of the fact that that's not something that I have and that hopefully we'll get to have that one day. But it's more difficult for us than it is for many other people.
1: When I look at you, I, you are so accomplished professionally, right? You are super, super smart. You teach Talmud. You sort of have this really intellectual pursuit professionally. That is sort of one of the interesting things about the modern Orthodox community, right? Because the word modern is in there. You work, you're not prevented from doing anything because you're a woman and you're free to pursue the career you want. But at the same time, I mean, this is also true, obviously, for all women, no matter what community they're in, there is that sense of like, so, you know, what's the next step? I mean, like when I got married, all of a sudden, everyone was like, okay, so when are you having a baby? You don't realize that people presume you to be on a track necessarily, even if we all do think of ourselves as modern women who can do what we want.
6: And the fact of the matter is there is not unlimited time for women to have babies. Many of my friends who are single have started freezing their eggs. My husband and I wanted time after we were married to be together without thinking about adding to our family unit. We didn't live together before we were married and so we wanted to have that experience and we got to travel which was great but the other thing was that i was finishing my doctorate and it was pretty clear that either i could finish my doctorate or we could have children right away but it was not going to be that we could have both of those things and as it turned out i had my first miscarriage like right before i graduated from graduate school And so the community that I'm in thinks that it's great what I do, which is lucky because I'm a woman with a PhD in Talmud. And there are, even in the modern Orthodox world, many communities who are not into the fact that I'm a woman with a PhD in in Talmud. My community is super into it and they respect me and they see me as a scholar and I'm very lucky for that. I'm also aware of the fact that the attention that I got when I got engaged and when I got married was greater than the attention that I received even when I got my doctorate. And it wasn't because people weren't proud of me for getting my doctorate, but there's something about this milestone that in certain ways, there are these expectations that we have of women where even though we don't want to admit that part of what we want from them is, can you please get married and have children in addition to having all these professional successes? Those are the milestones that we have tools to recognize, right? When I got married, there was a ceremony in synagogue, right? With an ufruf, where are called to the Torah and you're given a blessing. When we hopefully have children, there will be a ceremony involved, either because we'll have a baby naming for a girl in shul or because there'll be a bris, right? There's no special blessing that you say for someone who gets their PhD or who gets promoted at work or who wins a prestigious professional award. So one of the challenges is that the religious community is so built around this model, right? You say... When a couple gets married, like, may you have children? That's part of the blessing you give them under the chuppah. And then when you have a baby, you say, Torah hu tovim. may you raise them for Torah, but also to chuppah, right? To getting married and then also for good actions. There's this sense that this is how it should work. And in fact, I once did an Ufraf, Where the couple said to me, we're at an age where we are not able to have children anymore, can you take that out of the blessing? But I had to change liturgy for them. And I think the more we as a community can think about how do we create a model of life that isn't only around this very traditional nuclear family structure, the more welcome, not only people like us who are struggling to have children, but also people who are single by choice, people who are single not by choice, people who choose to have children on their own, right, all of these different pieces That's going to create a much more expansive community. You wrote another piece for Tablet that sort of reflects
1: the new reality that we're all living in. And the unique challenge it poses to people dealing with infertility, going through IVF. Could you sort of bring us up to speed on your story and what you've been writing about? So after
6: my third miscarriage, we went to a fertility doctor and he basically said like, usually we say you have to have IVF after a fourth miscarriage, but we decided that emotionally we were not going to try to have the fourth miscarriage before we went to do IVF. And we were lucky that we were able to fund IVF because it's extremely expensive and not covered by many health insurances. And part of what happens is even though my most recent miscarriage was at the end of December, it takes a long time for the hormones to clear out of your body. And so we weren't actually able to begin the IVF cycle until the end of February. There are two steps in an IVF cycle. The first is the retrieval where they basically try to get your body to grow as many eggs as possible and then they go in and harvest them and as many of those eggs as possible they fertilize and then the ones that live to day 3 or day 5 those embryos are then either they're frozen or they have what's called a fresh embryo transfer where the embryo is transferred into the woman. We did the retrieval exactly 1 week before the fertility clinic shut down because on March 17th, the overarching umbrella, the American Academy of Reproductive Medicine said they recommended that for the duration of the COVID-19 pandemic, that clinics should be shut down. And they said it because the claim was that reproductive medicine is an elective procedure. And that the recommendation was that all elective procedures be stopped for an indefinite period of time. And what that meant for us was even though we had finally gotten to get this process started, my hormones had finally gone down, we had finally begun. And then the clinic shut down before we could do the transfer. I'm in a Facebook group, which is filled with people who are waiting to hear from their clinics, right? It's infertility canceled because of COVID-19, and Part of the challenge is that even for people whose clinics are opening up again, not everyone can get an appointment because they can't take people at the same volume that they did before. Some of these women in this Facebook group are in their early 40s. And actually for them, these months, which they say it's only a few months, hopefully, but they actually can feel like they might make a difference as to whether they get to have children or not. The other piece of it, and this is something that I've been feeling really strongly, is that in many ways, I'm luckier than most For now, I'm still employed. My husband is still employed. We have a roof over our heads. We can pay all of our bills. We both get to work from home. We don't have to go out. Our families are healthy. But this is really painful for us. And something that I have felt is that it's really difficult for me to talk about the ways that this is painful because I feel guilt about the fact that I generally have it so much better than everybody else. But at the same time, this is really hard, right? And pain that existed before COVID-19 doesn't go away just because now there's also COVID-19. There's so many reasons that someone could argue that it's better not to be pregnant right now or not to have a child right now. And objectively speaking, I totally hear all of those reasons and I feel basically none of them, (laughs) right? Because there's a real difference between how I feel and what I intellectually know. And if doctors were recommending women who are fertile should not have children right now. This would be a different conversation. But instead, all anyone is talking about is coronavirus baby booms, which makes me want to scream. So if no one's saying to them, it's too dangerous for you to have children, how come people are saying to me, it's too dangerous for me to have children? First
1: of all, you're completely valid to feel all the feelings that you're feeling. And I feel like you're sort of like, thank you. You can intellectualize things and rationalize things so much, but I want to like validate your feelings because it's terrible, right? Like to feel these months slipping away, I'd hear you. And so I guess I want to go down this road a little bit more because. I imagine people say like not the most helpful things to you. And so I guess I want to know, I mean, if you don't mind sharing just sort of some of the not helpful things that people should avoid saying, and then also, you know, how to talk to women just in general about this phase of their lives, right? Like how to not assume anything, but not pry too much, especially in, I think, communities where there are expectations, be fruitful and multiply, right? Like every Jewish person, no matter how religious they are, they have that in their heads somewhere. So, I mean, could you sort of like educate us a little bit?
6: I would encourage any woman where someone says to them, don't you know about be fruitful and multiply to respond? Actually, according to the Talmud, women are not obligated to be fruitful and multiply just because it's both true and interesting. And also, I think maybe will make a point to people that perhaps they should shut up in a kind way. You should never ask someone about their fertility. You shouldn't ask men about their fertility. You shouldn't ask women about their fertility. You shouldn't ask non-binary people about their fertility. There are many people that I know, including people who live in the observant community who don't plan to have children. And one told me that one time someone came up to her and started offering to her recommendations of fertility specialists because she just assumed that for the amount of time that she had been married, if she didn't have children, she must need a fertility specialist. So don't recommend fertility specialists to people unless you know that that's something that they're looking for. Remember that women in particular are more than baby carrying and making machines. You know, I give a tremendous amount of credit to both my parents and my in laws for the fact that none of them have ever said anything to us. Now they know what's happening because I've written about it on the internet, but also before that, we talked to them about it. But I never felt pressure from them to have children. And I'm extremely grateful to them for that because that is not true of all of my friends who are married. So I just don't think we should assume that people's reproductive choices are anybody's business. And I'm not sure why or how we got to the point where people think otherwise. Just like it's not helpful if you say to a single person, so have you met anyone recently? Nobody nobody wants that. So too, nobody wants to hear, so are you going to try to have children? Because either the answer is yes, but I'm not telling people that I'm pregnant or no, I don't want to have children or no, I don't want to have children right now. Or yes, I desperately want to have children, but I can't for some reason. And thank you for bringing up this really triggering thing while I'm trying to eat a cookie at Kiddish. Don't ruin my cookie. That makes me angry. So mind your own business. You know, for people who are experiencing this, I think if you can talk about it, I found that it helped. Not everyone's going to find that it helped. And the other reason I would say if you can talk about it, you should is because of those 50 people that I heard from, because there are so many people who are experiencing this. You know, the statistics say they think one in eight couples experience infertility. And so I would say don't feel like you have to talk about it. But if you want to, don't refrain from talking about it just because you're worried it's going to make other people uncomfortable. Because it might make people uncomfortable, but I think that that's okay. And I think the more people hear about infertility, the more they're going to realize that they shouldn't say to people, so when are you having a baby? If people who are struggling don't feel like they have to worry, but what if I'm making other people uncomfortable? I think that that's going to be a real bomb for them. You know, I have a couple of friends who have written to me just to say, every Friday night when I light candles, I think of you and I pray for you and your husband that you should have children, that your prayers should be answered. And that's a really beautiful thing. And it means a lot to me. And it makes me feel connected to them in a way that never would have happened if I hadn't told part of our story.
1: No, I love that. And Rachel, thank you for telling your story. And thank you for agreeing to talk about it some more here with me. I think our listeners will find it really useful. And Thank you for everything.
6: Thank you for having me.
1: Rachel Rosenthal, Talmud teacher, Talmud expert, PhD, all around badass. Just wishing you the best.
6: Thank you so much.
1: That was my interview with Rachel Rosenthal. You can reach out to her through her website, rachelteachestorah.com. So do you guys remember a few years ago when I talked to the creator and star of this documentary, Wendy Shabbat?
2: How could we forget?
1: So this was a movie that Rachel made about her, her Nana and her group of friends who every Friday night in Palm Springs, they would go to Wendy's and have a Shabbat dinner. And it was the sweetest thing. And the people at Wendy's would like know to expect them. They would
2: say the blessing of a break. baconator.
1: And yeah, they acknowledge that it was sort of an unorthodox tradition, but, you know, it was sort of this group of people who had become a little bit like a family. So I wanted to check back in with Rachel and Roberta and see what was going on with them, see how obviously Wendy Shabbat were not happening. I wanted to see a little bit about Roberta's Shabbat routine during all of this. I am here with my favorite grandmother-granddaughter duo, Rachel Myers and Roberta Mahler. You guys were last on the show in 2018, actually on our Mother's Day episode, to talk about Wendy's Shabbat, which is the documentary you, Rachel, made about Roberta, your Nana, and the crowd of friends who were going to Wendy's on Shabbat. And it was this really, really beautiful film, and it was such a treat to talk to you both. And
5: so I just wanted to get back in touch with you. What's going on? We still have Wendy's Shabbat, which is, of course, now on a hiatus because of the coronavirus. Everybody's got to be careful with your seniors ranging in the 80s to 90s. We're being careful. Tell me
1: a little bit about what your Friday nights typically would look like, Roberto. Tell us a little bit about the Wendy's gatherings for some of our listeners who may not have heard that episode.
5: Usually, well, I would be going to Wendy's, but since It's, nobody's there. I've been staying home and they brought me into the 21st century. I'm learning how to Zoom. (laughs) And we get my grandson and his family from Denver we get my daughter and my granddaughter and family up in portland and Rachel in santa barbara and we uh, light candles we say prayers and we ha- we celebrate shabbat and it, it's really neat because all the kids and the grandchildren are there and it's just very warm and it's keeping families together what's interesting is
1: that In the film, it was a bunch of seniors who were living near each other who weren't with their families, obviously, on Shabbat. So you sort of had become this almost like chosen family of friends who would go to Wendy's and eat Wendy's. And, you know, the people who work there would expect you, would set the table for you. And now it's kind of interesting because... Now you're sort of seeing your family every week, right?
4: Because
5: we're all on these right. screens together. Well, yeah, because everybody's been following the directions of the governor. But it, it's nice because it brings the family together.
7: Yeah, it took a little bit, though. They, Palm Springs didn't shut down until after L.A. And I went out that first weekend because I was very cross with Nana and her gang because they were being very liberal about the instructions about being careful, getting their hair done, and salons were in. Yeah, that was Sharon. (laughs) (laughs) You just outed Sharon on on public radio, Nana.
1: Well, that's okay, I love her dearly. Are you seeing your friends, Roberta?
5: I am, I will either drive over or use my golf cart and go over and sit on their driveway. And we'll converse that way. As a matter of fact, we had a birthday and we all met at one driveway and we were sitting and, and celebrating.
1: They're golf cart driveway meetups. So it's like you can still be distanced.
5: Yeah. I mean, look, it, it gives you uh, how, how much can you isolate yourself? This way it's been very, it's very pleasant. It's very nice.
1: Is it interesting for you, Rachel, I mean, for your family to be connecting like this? I imagine you guys weren't always talking
7: every Friday night, everyone's in a different city, everyone has their lives going on. It's been really special actually. And it's been really grounding and I was really mad at my mom and sister one week because they didn't Zoom and I said never again. So it's been a regular gig since then and it's been really comforting and and I love it.
5: It is special and doing it this way makes it, with the whole family makes it even more special. So Rachel, I know the film came out a few
1: years ago. Is it possible to watch it online and where else can we follow along with the latest goings on of the the Wendy Shabbat crew?
7: It was bought by PBS and Topic and Broadcast, so you can find the full film now online on PBS or on topic.com if you look for Wendy Shabbat. On Facebook, the group is at Wendy Shabbat and the Instagram is all one word Wendy's Shabbat. And the website is wendyshabbat.com. Please follow us and say hello. We're talking about maybe organizing a Wendy's Shabbat Zoom to get all the seniors together to at least be able to say bracha and see one another when they're not in their golf carts on their driveways.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Rachel Myers, Roberta Muller, thank you so much for checking in. I hope you guys have a wonderful Zoom Shabbat tonight. Thank you. Thank you. We'll
0: see you at a Wendy's soon. Okay. Mazel tovs. I would like to start this week up in Alaska. Some of you saw the news a couple weeks ago that the Matsu Borough School Board. This is in Sarah Palin land. Recently voted to take five controversial books out of their library. I put controversial in quotation marks. They were going to make sure that high school teenagers didn't read I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou or The Great Gatsby or Catch-22. The board members admitted they hadn't actually read any of these books, but they could tell they were pretty dangerous. Well, my Mazel tov is to local lawyer Dana Lynn Dalrymple, who launched the Matsu Valley Banned Book Challenge, which offers a chance to win $100 for any Matsu high school kid who dares to read all five of these subversive books by August 9th. And we hear tell that uh, people are burning up the phones, purchasing the five books to give away to young people. So maybe they will end up the most educated 16-year-olds in America. They will be the only town in which all the 16-year-olds have read Catch-22 and The Great Gatsby. And so, Or, or if I may, just, have read or, a book. Or a book. So <laughs> It Mazel doesn't ta- matter which book. Mazel tov to our friends in the deep north. Liel, do you have a mazel tov? Uh,
2: did, did I talk about Animal Crossing yet? Did I mention Animal Crossing? At any point today. during the last six weeks, did I say Animal Crossing? My mazel tov is to the one and only Hudson Siegfried Ze'ev Libowitz, who this week beat Animal Crossing uh, beating his first video game, creating a lovely island that received a three-star rating, which is all you need to unlock the concert by the singing dog K.K. Slider, who signifies the end of the game. So Hudson put in uh, dozens of hours, planting flowers and beautifying his island and befriending all the very nice uh, talking animals on the island, and uh, his efforts paid off. So
1: he's truly tov. your child.
2: Mazel tov, Hudson. Sara, producer
0: Sara, you have a mazel tov? I have two. I'm going to keep it in the family. Uh, The first is to my
6: cousin, Yehuda Zinberg. Uh, He represented the United States at the Chidon HaTanach, which I think uh, was based off of the tablet podcast um, Hebrew School. Oh, absolutely. uh, yeah, the International Bible Quiz that um, is held every year in Israel on Independence Day. Now, because of COVID, my cousin was not able to fly to Israel. He competed um, from his home in New Jersey, and given the time difference, he had to compete at 4 a.m. his time. That's
0: when I do all my best, all my best Bible regurgitation, 4 a.m. <laughs>
1: um, and to
6: my other cousin, um, Aaron Schminman, who was just awarded um, the outstanding soldier in his paratroopers brigade in the Israeli army. We're really proud of him as well. My
1: shout-out this week goes to listener, super listener, Lauren Robin Goldher. She was the one who gave us the, the puzzle insight uh, to give to Nick Hornby, and I loved his answer. And we, it's all because it's all of you,
0: Lauren. Thanks, Lauren. And speaking of people we can't do it without, I think there's a birthday here in the uh, Own Orthodox family. It's the 43rd birthday of our own producer, Josh Cross with a K. Happy birthday, Joshi Washi!
1: I want to say that we've aged him like seventeen years in the two years he's been working for us. He had a he, full he
0: head of hair when, when he started <laughs> with us. He had a full head of hair. Look he at He had him. blonde, blonde ringlets when he started I know.
1: with us. Um, so sorry, not sorry. We love you, and we don't know what we would do without you. And maybe you Amen. don't even have to work on Sunday.
0: <laughs> and we would like you, and Josh, we would like you, we would love to select a musical uh, rendition of Happy Birthday or something appropriate, but but you do the music selection. So we hereby <laughs> so ask you, you to so select something. <laughs> buy
2: select yourself something, something nice.
1: <laughs> can you handle that?
2: <laughs> Josh, can you work on Sunday, which is your birthday, to make yourself a happy birthday? Tape? Thank you. Yeah, it's your birthday.
0: Hey guys, before I go into the credits, let me tell you, stick around afterwards for more exciting adventures with trope. You remember that we had people offer to chant children's books according to the Torah melodies. We play a couple of them after the credits. One of them is Jonathan Weinkel from Pittsburgh, who I believe is using the Megillotrope trope from the Purim reading of the book of Esther to do, well, I'm not going to tell you what he does. Just hang out after the credits. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or send us a little voice memo to that address, a voice memo to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. You can also call our listener line, 914-570-4869. If you want to order unorthodox swag, go to bit.ly slash shirt. It has a lot of sweats that you can lounge around in during quarantine. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and star Fredman Ader. Our assistant editor is Robert Scaramucci. Our artwork is by Esther Wardiger Our theme music is by Golem. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Martin. Steve Martin. <laughs> Don't I wish. Our mailbox theme is by— He, he plays banjo. The audiobook. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Uh, that other great Angelino, Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision by rabbis Dina Gottlieb and Natalie Shribman being ordained this Sunday by Hebrew Union College. And we come to you from Argo Studios, which sees quarantine as a chance to order some new leather face masks. Hello.
5: To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether no blow in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Or to take arms against a sea of troubles. And by opposing end them. To die to sleep no more. And by sleep to say we end the heartache. And the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to.
4: So here we go. This is Jews in Shushan. Uh, based on green eggs and ham. I do not like Jews in Shushan. I do not like them, said hey, amen. The Jews, they got us in this boat. I'd like to hang them by the throat. Their leaders. I will soon demote. This Mortify, he gets my go. I do not like Jews in Shushan. I do not like them, said hey, amen. I hate to see them in the town. Because Mortify, I will not bow down. They eat their homintasha nice and brown. Most every time I come
0: around, top sheet or no top sheet after you eat your babka—that's my question. (laughs) Well, after you eat your babka, you can't fit in the top sheet. I use
1: I use two slices of parchment paper. I use two pieces of parchment paper. (laughs) One is the top
0: sheet. For relatively new listeners, that's a deep cut. You got to go find the top sheet discussion.